one. Welcome to the High Reliability Podcast, presented by Goslin Martin Associates. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Peter Martin, president of Goslin Martin Associates. The High Reliability Fart Podcast, excuse me, is focused solely on the healthcare facility management professional. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Gordon Burrell, president of Tigor Consulting. Tigor Consulting provides a full range of support to healthcare facilities through planning, design construction, maintenance, operations, and renovation support. Located in Canada, Tigor Consulting works with hospitals and systems in Canada and the United States. Gordon is a registered professional engineer with more than 30 years' experience working in healthcare facilities and hospitals. He has trained facilities management and construction personnel throughout Canada and the U.S., and he's been a technical speaker at several national and international events, including ASHI. Gordon, thanks for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure, Peter. Glad to be here. Excellent. So we are uh, we are knee deep still within the coronavirus pandemic, and you're located up in Canada. I know a lot of your time is spent on the road traveling through the U.S. and Canada, which has been uh, squashed. So what have you been what have you been working on since early March? And boy, hasn't hasn't my world changed in the last few months? Uh, <laughs> you know, I would have spent probably sixty percent plus of my time uh, in uh, airplanes and traveling from place to place and working in the field in the various hospitals. And of course, in uh, mid March, that came to a screeching halt. I was actually just getting back from being on vacation at that time, and. Uh, uh, we were fortunate to be able to actually get home because it was at the time when flights were starting to get a little challenging in the middle of March. Where were you um, coming from, Gordon? I was actually coming from uh, Florida. We were we spent some time down in the southern Florida area. Uh, so, you know, we were just ahead of when the Canadian prime minister sort of made the public decree that uh, Canadians should be trying to make their way back home. Um, and, and we just we literally just beat that by about a day. Uh, wow. So we managed to get home fine. Um, but then when I got home, of course, uh, travel very quickly came to an end. And within that first week, the Canadian-U.S. border was closed down to non-essential travel. And by the end of that week, when I was first home, interprovincial borders also became closed to travel between provinces. So all of a sudden, I'm in my own home province, which is Fine, I love New Brunswick, and we have a couple of projects on the go here in New Brunswick, but a couple of projects is not enough to keep you really very busy. So what happened to me was all of a sudden I'm sitting in my office and uh, with not a whole lot of what I normally do to do, and um, the uh, we were we were asked by a number of our clients for some assistance in. Uh, in dealing with some of the emergency development of temporary spaces and, uh, you know, procurement for um, ventilators and all of the things that were the, you know, the sort of the very, very urgent need at the start of the outbreak. Uh, so we spent a lot of time doing that, which was great, although uh, not particularly good on the uh, on the income side of the house, but it made you feel kind of good to be busy and doing things. Um, and uh, then we became, so we, we, we realized quite quickly that, Travel is probably not in our immediate future, and we needed to kind of adjust our, our business model. And so we've actually done a lot of work recently on developing uh, virtual training programs that we're, we've just started to deliver. Now, these are relative to some of the Canadian standards, but certainly no, no reason why you couldn't do virtual training in any environment. The challenge there is 
to replicate the in-classroom experience as much as you possibly can. I mean, there's all kinds of self-paced learning programs and things you can learn on the internet, and they're all wonderful, but they're not the same as being in the classroom with uh, with an experienced individual in the field, the ability to deal with specific questions and so on. So we've that's what we've been trying to do. And I think just in the last couple of weeks, we've, we've crossed the line finally, and we're able to get that going. How how difficult is it to replicate the in-person experience? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, you, you need powerful software. Uh, to be able to uh, to replicate that environment, you need strong bandwidth so you can stream video, you can uh, have audio connections, you have the ability to uh, share flip charts or whiteboards, you have the ability to mark up the screens, you have the ability to break people off into working groups so they can uh, gain from each other's experience. And, and that's that's not sort of the off-your-shelf uh, free software that's available. There's a lot of great meeting software that, you know, goodness knows, the explosion in, in uh, Zoom meetings that are being done for uh, for personal purposes and so on. That's fabulous for that reason. But when you think about it from a point of view of having individuals looking to gain knowledge and, and gain experience and do that in a very reliable format, you do need to have a software platform that supports all of those things that you can typically do in the classroom. Yeah, that's quite the... Uh... When you put it in those terms, that's a lot of bandwidth you need. I guess you take a lot for granted when you're actually standing in front of a classroom uh, what, teaching. What, yeah, what I, what I found is there's a lot of things that you do in the front of the classroom that you don't even realize you're doing, right? right. You're, you're, you're monitoring body language. You're, uh, you know, sometimes you, you say things that get people a little bit upset, and so they sit up in their seat and so on. Well, that's a much diff- more difficult thing to replicate in the virtual environment, but it is possible. Yes. Yeah. I've always been a snob more towards the, I like the in-person, as you said, you can just read more, you know, the body language, it's easier to get folks engaged, but this is the new reality, right? At least for the rest of the year, probably. Yeah. It's the new reality for the, for the foreseeable future. That's for sure. And, and there's some advantages to it. I mean, when you think about uh, training, particularly in Canada, but there's, there's areas in the United States where this would, would hold true as well. Um, you know, travel is just not in the cards for a, a small community hospital that's got one or two people in their facility management department. They just can't spare the bodies. Um, and, you know, getting to a large urban center for training is just not going to happen. So one of the I think one of the silver linings, if you will, to the COVID outbreak from our perspective is that we are working on delivering these modalities because it doesn't matter whether you're in the middle of a major urban metropolis or you're sitting up around the Arctic Circle. Right now, you can't go anywhere. Um, and so it, it really kind of puts those smaller markets into perspective. Yes, yes, it does. What is the, um, relative to the outbreak, what's the situation up in Canada, Gordon? And, and what's the what's different, what's the same between Canada and the U.S., since you do have an you have a broad perspective on this. Yeah, I've been I've been kind of keeping track on on both sides of the border and and globally for that matter. Um, I mean, every jurisdiction is a little bit different. Of course, we saw all the challenges that uh, New York City got into when, uh, in essence, the, the the bug got ahead of them, uh, similar to what happened in Italy. And uh, fortunately, in Canada, uh, we've had a couple of hot spots like that, but nowhere near to the level that um, that the folks in New York City had to struggle with. Uh, I think nationally, we've had different levels of response. Um, 
from uh, from the various provinces. We've been incredibly fortunate in New Brunswick, where I'm located. Not a very big province. We've got less than a million people in my province, but we've only had 118 cases of COVID-19. They have all fully recovered. We've had no deaths. And at the current moment, we have no active cases, which That's is fantastic. kind of amazing. Yeah. yeah, a million people. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> the uh, it is it is kind of amazing and, and people joke a little bit about it. Uh, New Brunswick is a very rural province, a lot of uh, small towns. Uh, you know, we would think a hundred thousand people in one place is a is a major city, which of course it isn't. Um, but uh, but in, from New Brunswick context, that's what we would believe. Um, so we're spread out a lot, and uh, you know, there's actually been a few jokes going around about the fact that uh, when uh, when we were asked for the uh, for the benefit of the healthcare system to stay home and not go anywhere, apparently New Brunswickers are particularly good at that. Um, so you know everybody, where everybody kind of hunkered down. And I'll tell you why. When you think about one of the the, the major differences, when I look um, between Canada, which for the most part is rural. I mean, we have uh, you know maybe half a dozen major cities: Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver are probably the big ones, and then we got a couple smaller ones in Winnipeg, Edmonton, and Calgary. Um, but we don't seem to have the the unrest associated with the lockdowns. The uh, you know the stay-at-home orders and people not being very happy about that kind of stuff. Um, it's um, and I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's a cultural thing or or what the story is. But you know we've been in New Brunswick now. We have had no new cases of COVID nineteen for sixteen consecutive days. I haven't checked today to see what it is, and we're still at home. Um, Everybody is still working at home. Those who can. Um, essential services are, of course, operating, but anything that's not deemed essential is uh, working from home as best they can. That's impressive. Wow. How are the hospitals up there um, relative to down here? A lot of the censuses are low unless you're in one of the hot spots. Is it the same up there? Yeah, we're, we're seeing very similar. Uh, I mean, for most hospitals, most of the time in Canada, they tend to run that uh, – 105 to 100 percent census. It's a, it's a bit of a a bit of a challenge in the Canadian healthcare system. Um, you know, every every system has their pluses and minuses. And I always find it interesting when I'm working in Canada. People say, "Oh, geez, we need more of a, of a you know pay for whatever you need kind of system like they have in the United States." And then when I'm working in the United States, I hear people talk about we need more of a single payer system like they have in Canada. Trust me, neither one of us have got it 100 <laughs> correct. Um, uh, but with each system does have its benefits and its detriments, of course. And I think one of the big detriments in the Canadian marketplace. Um, is that our hospitals tend to run full. And as one um, uh, one government official once put it to me, he said, it's, it's like open, having a garden party in your backyard with an open bar and inviting the entire town and then trying to put a lid on the price that you're going to pay for that. Um, so that's that's one of our big challenges. But, but the hospitals, virtually from coast to coast, managed to uh, get ahead of the uh, surge of patients of COVID-19 and decrease their census. And most of the facility managers that I talk to, they, they use very similar terminology. They'll talk about the hospitals being eerily quiet hmm. in, in that the emergency departments are not having the same kinds of cases that they might typically have, people that probably shouldn't even be in an ED 
uh, that tend to go there just because of some of the challenges with primary health care that we have in Canada. And, and they're not there. Um, so the uh, the hospitals are, are um, they have reserve capacity. The, the, the surge capacity, if that's what you want to call it, is built into a system that's able to basically shut down. So non-urgent surgeries were stopped. Um, some of the uh, some of the ongoing um, acute treatments have been stopped as well, which has been a bit of a concern in some areas. I think our biggest challenge when it comes to healthcare as a whole uh, has not been the hospitals. It's really been in the long-term care facilities where we've had uh, a number of uh, COVID-19 outbreaks in long-term care facilities. And it just seems that when this bug gets in there, it runs like wildfire through the population in a long-term care building. Um, and it's really kind of highlighted some of our, um, I guess what I would call staffing challenges or the way we staff our long-term care facilities and and uh, and, and how we treat uh, the residents in some of these facilities with uh, you know, less less than ideal conditions in that they're too close to each other, in some cases sharing rooms and so on. Yeah. And as a result of that, uh, you know, a, a particularly contagious organism like uh, like this coronavirus is, is very, very difficult to manage. Yeah, so very similar to down here, to down here in the United States. When does, um, have they said when interprovincial travel will, will open back up? Is that still shut down for you? Yeah, well, the, the, the real challenge there is uh, our, our border, the New Brunswick's border to the west is um, uh, predominantly the province of Quebec. And Quebec has been the province that has been hardest hit, and particularly in the Montreal area, uh, particularly uh, urban area around Montreal. It's one of the biggest cities in the country. Um, but also their healthcare system there um, is notably different than it is in most of the other provinces. Delivery of healthcare is a provincial responsibility in Canada. So, um, you know, they, they do things a little bit differently there. And they have certainly been the hardest hit. They've had about half of all of the cases in Canada and over half of all of the deaths have occurred in the province of Quebec. So I don't expect to see that border opening up anytime soon at all. Uh, the state of Maine, which is also to our west and south, is kind of just getting into the front edge and perhaps the uh, towards the peak of their curve. So there, there we're going to be a while before we can go across that border as well. And I think uh, that one is going to come with the with the two the opening of the national borders, which may be a while yet because of the just because of the number of jurisdictions that are involved with that. To uh, to our east is the province of Nova Scotia, and, and they've had some challenges as well. For a relatively small province, they've had um, you know caseloads on a per capita basis, probably four to five times what New Brunswick has had. And so, as a result of that, I'm you know I'm not really very hopeful that our interprovincial border is going to open up anytime soon. Um, and uh, the only one border, which is not a bad thing to have happening as the summer comes along, if anybody's ever been to the beautiful province of Prince Edward Island, it's incredibly picturesque. It's a beautiful place to go and spend uh, summers and visits. They have been very um, fortunate when it comes to the COVID-19 outbreak as well, and they're a very comparable position to where New Brunswick is. So there's a lot of chatter right now of perhaps opening the border between New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island. The big advantage for New Brunswickers in that case is that people that typically come from all over everywhere to vacation in Prince Edward Island will not be able to make it over there. So we may have some opportunities for some great vacations in PEI this summer. 
<laughs> you got to look at the positive, right? Well, there's always a silver lining. You just got to look there for is. it. That's right. Sometimes you got to find it. Mm-hmm. So, what do you? Um, what are, are are there common issues that you have seen in hospitals, Gordon, relative to this outbreak? Yeah, I, w- I would say probably the biggest ones that we've seen has been um, a challenge in um, getting sufficient uh, space to deal with uh, an organism that we're not 100% sure how it's transmitted, um, and particularly the push towards um, significant numbers of airborne infectious isolation spaces, negative pressure isolation rooms. A lot of a lot of hospitals all across the continent and all around the world, for that matter, um, have been struggling to convert uh, normal inpatient rooms into negative pressure spaces through some um, either temporary air handling systems or through some adjustment of their main air handling system in the building. A lot of questions around how do we get um, negatively pressurized operating rooms so that we can perform aerosol generating medical procedures in a space that's safe for the uh, the caregivers uh, and really you know some um, you know I would almost put it as a, a, a real misunderstanding or uh, misinterpretation is probably a better word of uh, how the organism is transmitted from one patient to the next so you know, we get all kinds of questions around airborne isolation for uh, just having patients, in a bed. Well, as far as we know, and of course this could be proven differently the, the, in a world where you know, every 10 minutes you get something new coming at you. Right. Um, as far as we know, the bulk of the transmissibility of COVID-19 is in fact a contact transmission. It's droplet transmission. Uh, the airborne issues are uh, identified for those times where we're actually doing pr- procedures that produce aerosolization or micro droplets to become aerosolized. So the intubation and extubation of patients is a is a high risk one. But for the most part, all of the clinical folks are telling us, um, you know, you really got to button down on your contact precautions um, and make sure that uh, that you've got all of the equipment, which of course is a big challenge, the access to PPE um, and the, all of the right procedures to deal with that. And you know, we saw during the SARS outbreak in 2003, a lot of the in-hospital transmission that occurred during SARS was just simply people didn't know how to handle the protective equipment properly and they were infecting themselves or others in the way that they were doffing their PPE. And I think that's a kind of plays into the the, the long-term care facility challenges as well. Uh, you know, they haven't necessarily had extensive training, nor would they have had extensive experience in managing such a heavy level of PPE when you think about double gowning and double gloving and masks and then the shields over the masks and uh, head coverings and so on. In a a long-term care facility, that's just not something they do every day. And as a result of that, we've had some, I believe we're having transmissions as a result of just how we manage the PPE. Yeah, it's a really good point uh, regarding long-term care. Uh, Gordon, going back to the, you you talked about you know, hospitals making adjustments to their air handlers for pressurization purposes. Is there a um, a unique and safe adjustment that, without naming the hospital or the organization, a unique and safe adjustment that you've seen be made to an air handler that's stood out to you? Uh, boy, every one of them is different, Peter. It's uh, 
you know, when when uh, COVID nineteen first hit, um, the uh, the uh, professional group here that would be the uh, equivalent to the American Society for Healthcare Engineering, which is the Canadian Healthcare Engineering Society, they were asking you know professionals advice and and looking for some feedback to to give to their members on how to manage their facilities. And, you know, when they asked me specifically about it, I said, so the first thing you got to know is you, you really need to know your own building, what it's capable of and what its limitations are. Um, and every building is different on that front as far as, you know, adding uh, filtration or perhaps adjusting airflows in various areas. Those are all very different. And in some buildings, it's incredibly difficult to do any of that. And in other buildings, it's actually relatively simple to do some of that stuff. So really know your buildings. And then the other piece of advice was to make sure that the information you're working with is from a reputable source. Uh, there's so much misinformation around COVID-19 out there. And in the earlier weeks, I mean, you were hearing things like if you drink a glass of water every 15 minutes, you won't catch the bug, right? It's, uh, um, it's got nothing to do with drinking water every 15 minutes. Not that drinking a glass of water every 15 minutes is not a, a bad thing because it's not. Um, right, right. But it's not going to keep you from catching COVID-19 if you happen to be in a position where, um, you know, the bug is present. So knowing your buildings and, and understanding how you're able to adjust them, um, I, I think, uh, you know, some of the things that have absolutely amazed me have been um, how quickly some of the facilities have been able to respond and, and develop temporary spaces. And, and you know, that's a, a not only a shout out to the facilities management people, but also their engineering design teams that they work with and the suppliers that are working with them. There's a, you know, I can remember in, in one case um, in Southern Ontario, they were building, I think it was about a hundred or 125 bed temporary facility to house COVID-19 patients. They had some uh, concerns about uh, oxygen flow rates and, and ventilation rates in those areas. Um, in, in, in the uh, discussions that we were having, I was realizing you know, I've, I've got probably got one of the best engineers from one of the world's top suppliers of oxygen on the line here. I've got one of the best installers in the country that's involved in the discussion. I've got a facility manager that knows the limitations and the capabilities of their bulk plant and knows how to manage uh, oxygen systems effectively. We've got mechanical designers that are, you know, the top in their crowd and I just, and, and how they were, so able to work with each other so effectively. And that goes even further to the building inspectors and the medical gas inspectors and verifiers and so on. Um, you know, people that through normal course of construction seem to be at each other's throats a little bit. Right. All, all of a sudden, they're all pulling in the same direction. And it was really kind of amazing to see some of that stuff. And you know, we saw convention centers and and uh, in you know major urban centers and just you know very you want to talk about a very quintessentially Canadian situation we had one small town in the northern part of Ontario that needed additional bed capacity and didn't they take the local hockey rink and use that as a temporary healthcare facility so that's that's a great testament i think you know many of us and the people listening have been around those con those OAC construction meetings when your mechanical engineer might be going at your contractor with your client in the middle of it and somebody trying to keep the peace. Yeah. And, uh, 
Yeah, there was no time for that in this, right? I mean, you needed no. to react quickly. No, and and you know, I remember some of the conversations that I've heard that you know, even folks who are the the black and white inspectors kinds of people that are normally it has to be a one hundred percent correct kind of situation, mm-hmm. who who are recognizing that ninety nine percent, but being able to deal with ninety nine percent is better than not getting there at all. Um, and, and having a, you know, a facility with, you know, we'll take a hundred beds just as a round number and perhaps uh, be a point or two of failure within that space. And, and perhaps there's one or two patients that are lost because of that failure, but there were 98 or 99 patients that were not lost because the facility was there. And, you know, you got to look at that bigger picture sometimes. And I think people, it's kind of brought it into view, right? Yeah. Yes. Definitely. What do you think? What do you think the future looks like? And who knows when we get there? But relative to you know what you've just described—not the relaxation of regulations—but when we return to normalcy, what do you think the relationship go? Does the relationship go back to what it was relative to an organization and regulatory bodies, or, or do you think this is the beginning, maybe, of a different type of relationship? Well, boy, that's not so a, black and white. Yeah, that's a, that's a phenomenal question. I think uh, you know the the relationships that have been been struck here, either good or bad, um, are going to stick for many, many years. And I think there are absolutely far more good relationships that have been struck as opposed to bad ones. What does the future look like? Well, I, I don't know. I think there's, um, I think there are a lot of opportunities for, for learning from this kind of an outbreak. Um, certainly, you know, the, the breadth, the scope, the, the global impact. And I forget what I saw last 185 or 190 countries that have been impacted by yes. this. And, you know, we're, we're, we're nowhere, nowhere done with COVID-19 yet. Um, <laughs> sorry to be such a pessimist no, on I, that yeah. front. <laughs> um, so we just have to learn how to live with it, right? Um, yes. So uh, I, you know, I look at thinking about facilities in the future and will there be lessons to come out of this? Um, wow. You know, in 2011, I was a member of the uh, one of the CSA standards committee that talked about healthcare facility design. And, and, and we had a lot of pushback about requiring emergency departments to have the ability to design in the ability for a fourfold increase in patients for a surge load of four times their normal patient load. And boy, the ones that have done it, and there are a few, uh, since that was released ten years ago, um, you know, they're they're some glad they've had it over the last little while. The facilities who have really um, excelled in managing uh, the the surge of COVID patients have been those that are the newer facilities that have taken advantage of some of the lessons that we learned during SARS and, and MERS and the Ebola breakout and so on. Um, I think we're going to learn another bunch of lessons, and I don't know what those are, but I, I'm absolutely convinced that over the next four to five years, you know, documents like uh, ASHRAE 170 and the FGI guidelines will probably see a lot of learnings that get built into those documents so that 10 years from now or 15 years from now, when we get the next big one and there will be another one, um, we'll be better prepared for it. Yeah, the decompression and the, the lessons learned from this are going to take yeah, quite my- some time out into the future. It's not going to happen right away. I mean, as you said, you got 185 countries, 190 countries we're going to be dealing with for at least, you know, several more months, if not a year. And the the lessons learned are going to continue. Yeah, it's all it's always interesting when you look at uh, the, the the various 
uh, news media and the information that's communicated in the news media, you've always got to uh, temper the the information based on the source from which it comes. But uh, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of folks who are saying this is going to last for a while yet. And uh, you know, when you think about uh, history and how long it took to get vaccines for some of the very challenging illnesses like you know, tuberculosis and polio and chickenpox and all those kinds of things. We probably are in for the long haul here. Right. Right. So la- last question for Gordon Burrell, president of Tigor Consulting. Gordon, how, and this isn't related to COVID, but more your business. How difficult is it? And how did you get started going across the border, working in both Canada and the U.S.? And Is that a challenge or how do you deal with with International work. Yeah, I'm, and right now it's impossible. But um, generally speaking, with the um, between Canada and the United States, I've not worked in Mexico, but I would assume the Mexicans would have very similar kinds of agreements. The the uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement or the, the 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 update of that allows for professional services back and forth across the border. So it's really just a matter of showing your credentials, what what it is that you're doing, and showing that you're doing something that. Uh, is of value to the public in the in the area where you're going to go and work, um, which has generally not been a challenge for me. Um, I've, I've right. done it, uh, you know, I've done it for about 15 years now, um, and uh, it never it never seems to be a challenge. And um, it's uh, it's uh, getting a little bit tighter than it used to be. And of course, with COVID 19, it's absolutely shut down. And I don't know when that's coming back, but I'll be ready to go when it does come back. Right, right, right. I'm sure you'll be chomping at the bit to go once it comes back, as will most of us, I would guess. You know, I might get used to being home at dinner time. It's uh, it's kind of nice. <laughs> well, maybe if they could just, uh, if you could go between you know provinces, that'll be enough for you. Yeah, it's hard to say. Right, you, you go where the work is for sure, and and you know I've been incredibly fortunate to work on some some uh, very interesting projects, both large and small. Um, all all throughout uh, North America, we've done some work in the Caribbean and, and in Europe and Asia as well. And it's just it's just really exciting to work on some of that stuff. That you know, you just you're not going to do it if you stay in your hometown. There's no way you can because uh, all of that, all of those things just don't all happen in the same place. Right, right, and it's those um, those benchmark projects that you remember and you take with you to you know to to your new clients and the value that you bring. No, it's just like going to school every day. You go into some of these meetings with people that are so much smarter than I am. And I just consider myself absolutely fortunate to be part of some of these projects, even though what we're doing is generally a very small piece. It's still, there's so much to learn and there's uh, healthcare is such a fascinating field. It's just like every day there's, there's something new. And, and then we get an outbreak like this one and it's like every five minutes or something. New. And, you know, <laughs> if you, get bored, you get bored in this game, man, it's your own fault. Right. I, was I mean, it was challenging enough prior to this and I layer this on top of everything. Uh, it's constantly evolving and it's just going to continue. Yeah, for sure. No, it's an exciting field and I love it. I, I wouldn't be doing anything else. Excellent. Well, my thanks to Gordon Burrell, president of Tigor Consulting for joining us today. Thanks again for listening to the High Reliability Podcast. I'm Peter Martin, Goslin Martin Associates. Check us out on the web and we will talk to you next time. Thank you, Gordon. Thanks so much, Peter. Have a great day, everybody.